Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your 2013 April edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host. We kick off this month's edition of VOE with recent CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame inductee, Sally Hogshead. She's an award-winning copywriter and former creative director with clients such as Nike, Godiva, Mini Cooper, and many other iconic brands. Her book, Fascinate, established her as the world's leading expert on fascination. She says that when you fascinate customers, you immediately engage their interest, and they're more likely to remember, trust, and buy from you. And that's exactly what she's done in the speaking business. She's had a meteoric rise to success going from a relative unknown to one of the most popular and in-demand speakers working today. Listen now as she shares with us how she's done it. There are things that are within your control as a speaker, things that you can do to change the course of your business, to change the course of your career, things that we may not realize that we have control over. Because let's be honest, there's a lot that we don't have control over. I do not have control over how my reputation looks like to somebody that I've never met. I don't necessarily have control over whether I have a bestseller. I don't have control over who I'm up against for a gig. I don't have control over the fact that the maybe the bureau has five people that they have a vested interest in pushing ahead of me. I can't control any of those factors. But I do have certain things that I can affect certain parts of my personality, certain parts of my personal brand, and certain parts of the way that I introduce myself to potential clients. Sally, talk to us what you've learned about the decision-making process when an organization is selecting a speaker. Wow. I have to tell you, it is a Byzantine protocol that's very rarely seen by the naked eye. (laughs) It's a practice. I spent six months researching exactly how how does an organization go from looking for a speaker to having one booked. Now, is that a process that you did in your previous life when you would do an ad campaign or marketing campaign? Would you study buying behaviors or would... Theo, that's that's very interesting. I never thought about that. Yes, that's exactly what I was doing. I never thought about that. Yes, I was applying the schema of understanding purchase behavior and applying it to speaking. I, I, I wasn't consciously doing it, but I said to my team, I, we, we need to get incredibly smart because whatever we're doing is not working. So what are the people who are doing it right? What are they doing? How are they doing it? And what's the result? You know, there, so much of this happens in sort of like the black box of the bureau world, the speaking management world, the client decision-making, the committees, nobody really knows. And so what I wanted to do is to figure out where's that place where I can have the, the greatest amount of influence in the process. And what I found was that there are a lot of things that affect the decision. A lot of these things were things that happened 10 years ago, like starting to build a reputation a certain way, or working at a corporation as a CEO and selling out for millions, or writing three best-selling books. Well, all of those things, hats off to them. I completely respect that, but I didn't have those things. So it was almost pointless for me to try to compete against that. And then I looked over here, there there are these things that happen that I also can't control with when a a bureau has a certain speaker that, that they're gonna get a higher commission for if they book them, or that event planner has their pet that they've had three times and they want to bring back or or buddies with the CMO or whatever it is. I can't control that either. There is one moment that I knew that any speaker can have complete control over. And that moment is the first second when their materials arrive. The first second when the decision maker is introduced to the idea that they could be the speaker. In that moment, there are two things that can happen. The speaker's either going to go over to the no pile or the speaker's going to go to the maybe pile. Those are the only two things that can happen, unless they're hired. But usually that, you know, that takes a while. 
if if they go into the no pile, that means they either their content was wrong or they were irrelevant or they didn't break through enough. But if they go into the maybe pile, they can then then that means they're going to deserve a second look. The first look is not about the content, and it's not really about the reputation. The first look is about that that client or decision maker or committee head or even speaking bureau looking at it and saying, does this deserve a second look? And for a long time, the reason why my career was not getting off the ground was because the answer was no. No, it was not worth a second look. I was trying to do it the right way. I was trying to model myself after what other speakers did. So I blended in beautifully. You know, I had exactly what they had. I was doing it the right way. And what I realized was, in that moment, unless I had that best-selling book, unless I had a consistent article in Harvard Business Review and was a, a, an ongoing weekly guest on the Today Show, I couldn't compete with those other people. So I decided to go about it a different way. I was going to say, in my mind, I, I thought, they're not necessarily going to like my material. I, I can't predict if they're going to like it. And I can't even predict that I'm going to be the right speaker for them. But I can guarantee that I will get in the maybe pile for that second look. If all I can do is just avoid the no pile, stay in the maybe pile, and continue to earn their interest and their excitement, I'm going to have a better chance. But it's all going to start with that very first impression. You know, in my research for Fascinate, I discovered that the average attention span today, according to web browsing, might only be nine seconds. According to the BBC, our, our attention spans may only be nine seconds. Now, that could be wrong. Let's say it's 300% wrong. Let's say it's 27 seconds. The reality is that in that first nine seconds, I had to do something that was going to be worthy of the next nine seconds and the next nine seconds. And so I decided that I was going to try to create the exact same experience that the audience gets in my keynote, that experience of being completely thrilled and delighted, cracking up in the world in a different way, that, there, that there's an alternative way to view yourself and your world and your communication that's far more effective and that's, that's very instinctively rooted that we can draw upon to take all of that and to put it into my introduction. And so, for example, with my speaking reel, I thought about this quite a bit. When I, look, I, looked at a, I looked at 100 different speaking reels, I looked at how effective they were, I correlated the quality of the speaking reel to the quality of the speaker, untraditional approaches to how that affected how often the speaker was getting booked and so on. I mean, I really measured this. I guess like you said, I was doing buying patterns. And I decided that I was gonna create a speaking reel that was not where I was in my career at that point, which was July of 2011. I decided that I was gonna make the speaking reel that I should have one year from that date. And my intention was not just for it to be a speaking reel. My intention was to make it absolutely impossible for the decision maker, who probably had never heard of me, to not discount me. That they could watch the reel and they may not like it, but they were definitely not going to turn it off after nine seconds. They were going to keep watching it. And if I knew that I could just stay in that maybe pile, and I knew that I could break through enough to clearly define myself as being in, a, in an unusual space in the, in the category, you know, a lot of times as speakers, we either focus on the information or we focus on the inspiration. You know, we focus on teaching in a professorial way or we focus on the entertainment of it. What's a different model? Where could I live in a different place in the matrix? Out of that, I created this speaking reel that functions much more like an advertising commercial than it does like a traditional speaking reel. I think as speakers, we're great communicators, but I think we're not very good at creating speaking materials. So the good news is the bar is really low. 
<laughs> if you want to if you want to be fascinating and extraordinary to potential clients, you can do it without radically reinventing the wheel. All you have to do is be really great in one way. You know, you don't have, you don't have to be great at everything. You just have to be exceptional in in one way that your materials will stand out. And so for me, I funneled a lot of energy into the speaking video. I released the video and we had almost 10,000 views in something like 4 weeks and I booked my calendar almost through March of 2012 in in less than a month. And I here's what I think it was. I don't think my content changed. I don't think my attitude changed. I was the same very hard working, very frustrated speaker trying so hard to share my message with people. The change was that I started realizing that the traditional way of building a speaking career works very well for some people, but there's another way that we can express our personalities and to capture people's excitement in a totally different way. And when we do that, we don't have slow incremental growth that takes place over years and over decades. We have growth that can skyrocket. You know, if you think about it on a graph, it's not geometric growth that happens slowly. This is like a hockey stick. And when we do that, it, it is risky. Because what because we're 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 really you really have to put yourself out there and figure out what makes you and your content and your delivery fascinating. But instead of just focusing on the audience, meaning the participants sitting in front of you at a speech, I began focusing on the audience before the audience, the audience of decision makers. Instead of focusing all my time on my craft, my delivery, my research, I stopped that and I turned my attention for a bit on the audience before the audience. And by doing that, I realized that those are the people that we really need to fascinate in order for us to be able to get to the audience. You know, those are the gatekeepers. There are, there are many things like what I just described, many ways that we can choose the traditional path, but we have alternatives. And that if we do these alternatives, it can transform the ability for us to share our message with more people, because th this is the price. If we do not reach our full potential in speaking, our message fails because we don't have the opportunity to share it with other people. It's not enough just to have a great message if nobody hears it. It's not enough to be the best speaker if you don't change people's lives. And so if you have a gift to be a speaker, if you have a message that needs to get shared and you don't do everything in your power to get it out there and to share it with people, then you're doing a disservice. I believe as speakers, we have a duty to make sure that our message is heard by other people. And if what we have to do is to rethink the way in which we go about approaching the process of, of having the honor and the invitation of getting on those stages, then so be it. Because our message deserves it and the audience deserves it. You said that it was risky. What was the risk in doing that? You said when you go from slow incremental growth to the hockey stick, there's a risk involved. What's the risk? I did a study of a thousand Americans around the country, and I uh, really a thousand, Sally. A th <laughs> really, it wasn't like six hundred, three fifty. It was it was twenty five. One thousand fifty nine Americans aged eighteen to seventy two. Okay. It was done by Kelton Research, global research company, and as part of the research, 
we, we, have, we had done research on how people wildly overestimate their abilities. People think uh, 90% of Americans think that they are more intelligent than the average person, which of course is impossible. You know, 50% is more intelligent than the average person, but we overestimate our abilities consistently across all, all strata. So in our study, we asked, are you more fascinating than the average person? Only 39% of people think they are more fascinating than the average person. I think that's sad. I think there is a virtue in being boring. I think that we were brought up to prize an ability to not make trouble. And too often as speakers, in our, in our effort to do the right thing and walk the right way and have, have the right delivery and the right content, and you know, we read those verbatims and it just breaks our heart and shuts us down when somebody says, I didn't get anything out of this session. I mean, God, that, you know, it's just tear-inducing. I think that it's hard for us sometimes to really authentically, truly put ourselves out there. And so the risk is in exposing part of yourself that when you stand out, you could fail. You, you could fail really badly. Well, it, it, fail, and I th- think you said earlier, if you're doing it, if you're doing it right, you will be rejected, and there will be controversy, and it's and this is and it, it's an investment on many. So, fronts. who's rejected you? I, there doesn't seem to be any controversy with what you're doing. I think are the boring rallying and uniting against you. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, you said you were pushing against boring. Who resists you? L- let me come at, let me right, come at sure. this from a different direction. Yes. Let's talk about the fact that my speaking business wasn't doing well, okay. and so I doubled down. And instead of saying, okay, it's not going well, I'm going to be quieter, and I'm going to save, and I'm going to play it safe, instead I said, you know what? I'm going to invest everything into making sure that my speaking gets everything that it deserves in very specific and strategic choices. For example, my business card costs $2 each. $2. It has been described in the press as the world's coolest business card. And the math has worked out brilliantly. I estimate that each business card has earned me $1,500. Because I don't have to give that business card to thousands of people. But when I want to give a business card, it's my job, in order to be consistent with my brand, to fascinate them immediately in the first nine seconds. And so if I'm going to talk the talk, I have to walk the walk, and I better damn well fascinate them. So when I hand them my business card, they are never not fascinated. And that has opened the door just to crack the way I needed it to for me to then be able to continue the conversation so that then we can, then they can start to get past the, the initial door opener and start to get into the quality of my content, the quality of my training, the quality of my published book. Look, it's not enough just to have all of those things that we work so hard to earn. It's not enough to have that if nobody notices or cares. You have to first get the door open and and start the conversation. So you can have this warehouse of great content and delivery, but if people don't know about it and people don't care about it and they're not talking about it and wanting to talk to other people about it, you lose. It's not enough to just be the best. There's another way that we can introduce ourselves to people that doesn't have to do with the quality of our content and the quality of our delivery as we were traditionally raised to think. You know, my parents are from the Midwest. They're from Iowa. It's all very, very Protestant work ethic. You work hard and and good things will happen. Well, we live in an incredibly distracted environment. And for nobody, is it busier, more distracted, more competitive than the speaking the speaking marketplace right now. You can't just sit back and hope that people will recognize that you have good content and delivery. You have to find ways to let your personality shine. 
and your way is going to be different than my way. The point is not for us to succeed in the same way, it's to find our own way to uniquely encapsulate what we do differently and better. That concludes part one of my interview with Sally Hogshead. Part two is continued on track eight of this edition of VOE. My next guest is Maya Reyes, and in this interview, she shares with us valuable insights she gained in her 12-year career as Director of Diversity Marketing for the LVCVA, the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. This interview is somewhat slow to get started and contains some information on the front end that may not seem immediately relevant to the speaking business. However, be patient. The information she shares throughout the interview could have significant economic impact on your speaking business. I encourage you to listen to the entire interview as things get a little heated near the end. And just so you know, even if you're not concerned about diversity, your clients and audiences are. And the information shared in this segment is hugely important to them. It might be important to you as well. I'm here with Maya Reyes. Maya, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do. Well, I recently retired from hey, a lovely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I recently retired as director of diversity marketing for the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority and started my own company. And I was very, very fortunate during my 12 or so years working in diversity marketing to have been exposed to the LGBT market because it was a market that I wasn't familiar with. All right, time out. What is LGBT? What does that stand for? LGBT is lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. Okay. Twelve years ago when I started, it was called GLBT. And I remember going to my boss and saying, you know, this is a great market that perhaps we should target because I think it can drive a lot of positive revenue to our bottom line, to the city of Las Vegas. I said, He says, what's that again? I said, the GLBT market. And he said... Is that something like a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich? <laughs> and I'm like, well, not quite, but let's take a look at it. And we did. So what had you want to take a look at it 12 years ago? Well, being responsible for diversity marketing, meaning all ethnic diversity and women, my job was to drive visitation to the city of Las Vegas from these targeted groups. And I was approached by a company called Community Marketing Inc. in San Francisco, which is the country's uh, preeminent LGBT marketing research company. And they came to me and talked to me about the value in the LGBT market and how we could benefit from working with them. And I thought, wow, this was all new to me. I, I didn't know. And he really gave me a lot of great information. And I thought, wow, this really sounds like something we should do. So targeting them, meaning, first of all, doing some research and some introspection into where we were as a company and as a destination to see if this is something that made sense for us. And that's something I highly recommend that everyone that wants to reach out to the market does, because right now, industries across the board are are wanting to kind of reach out to this market because of all of the economic value, the spending power, the you know same-sex households that have higher household income than the two-sex household. I just recently read from Diversity, Inc. that same-sex households, on average, generate $106,000 annual income, whereas a two-sex household generates about 86000 So that's a significant difference. That coupled with the fact that 
they are generally high income earners. Generally, LGBT people are higher educated than straight people. And about 64% of gay people have a college education versus a much lower number. I think it's around 29% of heterosexuals. So you have two high income earners in the same household, generally that don't have children because about 20% of lesbian couples have children now, and about 5% of gay people do, gay couples do. So therefore, there's a lot of discretionary income, and this is the demographic and spending behavior that most companies are looking for. So you were attracted to this as a, from, as a, from a business perspective. This wasn't a social justice issue at the time for you. This was purely looking at it from a business. This made a lot of sense economically. Well, exactly, because that was my job. My job was to bring business into the city. So I'm always, we're always looking for the best customer. So when I saw that it was a relatively untapped market, then no one was really going after the market. And I thought, well, wow, let's see what we can do. Or if our destination was even one that was of appeal to the market, because you you have to have a product or service to sell. And what were you able to do? We conducted research. We engaged a company to come in and help us with a research project. And we were pleasantly surprised to find that really we did have the kinds of amenities from a destination standpoint that were very much of interest to gay travelers. Right away, we said, okay, we're not a quote-unquote gay destination like some cities are, like West Hollywood, like Provincetown, like Boys Town in Chicago, etc. We weren't that. We were Las Vegas, and Las Vegas is Las Vegas. But it just turned out that we had so many amenities that were of interest to the LGBT travelers as well, like the dining and the entertainment and the shopping and all of that. So after doing the research, we started putting together our plan. But it isn't something that just happened overnight. You know, it took time for us to find out where we were, because if we don't know where we are, we can't figure out where we can go. We found out where we were, where we stood. And then we reached out to our our partners and said, this is what we're thinking about doing. And Everyone was very supportive. Everyone was like, yes, let's do it. We found out later, we learned about the HRC, which is the Human Rights Campaign. They have something called the Corporate Equality Index, where they actually rate corporations on their equality practices and policies. And a couple of the hotel companies in Las Vegas had earned 100%. On, on that, and it's a very stringent criteria. I mean, it's not something that's just easy to to pass and to receive 100%. You really have to have transgender coverage and domestic partner benefits and so on and so forth. So we most of the companies in Las Vegas, because, you know, we have just a couple of large companies that own most of the properties there anyway, that had received between 86 and 100% on the HRC Corporate Equality Index. So that was a really good thing for us. So we just kind of moved forward, and we started working on our advertising, on our PR. We brought our ad agency in on it. And so it just worked out really great. And for myself, my focus really was on meetings and conventions. The last fiscal year that I was there before I retired, I booked 83,000 room nights from just LGBT meetings and conventions. That's not including any leisure travel. And meetings and conventions accounts for about 15% of the overall marketing mix into the destination and into most destinations as well. So if there were 83,000 room nights from the 15%, then we can only imagine what the leisure traveler represented, though that's not something you can really measure. You know, meetings and conventions you can measure. I do. I work exclusively with LGBT. LGBT. Uh, LGBT. Yeah, not that BLT sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you work exclusively. exclusively. Mm -hmm. That's all I do every day. And what do you do in that space? 
Well, I do a number of things. I work with tour operators and travel agents and meeting planners on one aspect because I have the Las Vegas Gay Visitors Bureau. I launched the Las Vegas Gay Visitors Bureau. So this is a B2B resource for people that are booking Las Vegas. They come to our website to find out what's going on, you know, what kinds of things that are happening. We have a a host of experiences specifically created. We have commissionable opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. I also have Gay Vegas Travel, which is the B2C site. So this is where we reach out to travelers around the world. And we, we really do reach out around the world because... I am in my second term as board member of the International Gay and Lesbian Travel Association. So in that capacity, I've had an opportunity to meet people in the travel industry all over the world. Last year, we were in Brazil, and really, it's just expanded my horizons incredibly. In about two weeks, I leave for Berlin for the largest tourism show in the world. It's called ITB Berlin with over 200,000 attendees. So you've established, Maya, that there's a huge economic incentive here for Mm -hmm. companies and organizations to tap into this market. From a speaker's perspective, what lessons have you learned in these last 12 years that a speaker could benefit from? Well, what I've learned from personal experience is that you really have to be careful because obviously the demographics, the U.S. Census and a number of other sources tells us that, you know, there's a significant LGBT population in the United States. And the gay is now, I always say, kind of creeping into mainstream because remember, five, ten years ago, you never saw anything on television or anything in the media. Now we've got Modern Family, you know, we've got a number of programs. We've got Anderson Cooper and Rachel Maddow and people that are um, highly visible, highly visible, credible people in the in in the media in the industry of media. People like we were talking about the new CEO of Apple. You know, who I just read an article said he's the most powerful gay man in Silicon Valley. And I mean, it, so it's everywhere. So it's something that I think that corporations have to be aware of. If you want to stay relevant, then you have to embrace all market segments. And this is someone that you know drives tremendous value to your company. Well, Aside from a corporate concern about these issues, from a speaker's perspective, then, it's safe to say that a certain percentage of their, op- of their audience is going to fall into this population. Right, exactly. So what are some common mistakes that a speaker may make that would be insensitive to this, mm-hmm. this group of people? Well, for one, the terminology. Like, you really have to be aware of the correct terminology. And there is the National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association that actually publishes a lexicon, a glossary of terms. And it, it would be something really valuable for anyone that's speaking to any audience because every audience is going to have a certain number of people that are gay. I mean, that's just the way it is. And if you look at somewhere between 7 and 10% of the U.S. population self-identifies as LGBT, well, it's a pretty good chance that somewhere around that number may be in your audience as well. You have to be careful about the terminology. I'll give you an example. I hear a lot of people say, the term alternative lifestyle, which I think many people consider to be something that's appropriate to use in describing the LGBT market, but it's not at all. And it's really perceived as something that's very offensive because it's not an alternative lifestyle. It is their lifestyle. It is the way they were born, and it's their lifestyle. And to say it's alternative, meaning alternative to what? What is it? It's normal for me. This is my lifestyle. That's 
you know, I would, you example. can see how that seems like it would be an, an innocent mistake that a speaker right. might make. That, Absolutely. So the intent behind that would not mm-hmm. to be would not be insensitive, but it sounds like they have to be very careful what language right. as speakers we have to be careful what we say. Are there any other examples of things that we should be aware of? Well, in many states in the United States, we actually have legalized gay marriage, and so many people are legally married. And if two men are married. I have people ask me this all the time. Which one is the wife? Well, neither one is the wife because you have two husbands or you have two wives. So if you have children, you have two dads, you have two moms. So there's no such thing as a husband and a wife in a same-sex marriage. So it would be offensive to someone to use that terminology. Another one is to use the word transvestite, which is just... A terrible, terrible thing to say. But most people think. Well, I apologize. I had no idea that that was a terrible thing to say. It is, and it's just something that you. What is the appropriate thing to say? The appropriate term is transgender. Transgender. So transvestite is no longer. Right. But you can't see this. Our listeners can't see it. But when I said those words, you actually you're grimacing, (laughs) when I say those, and I apologize. I mean no offense by it, but that's that was the word we grew up with. Right. Exactly. And so that's why I think that speakers, if they're not educated can easily make a mistake out of innocence. I don't think there's any speaker that would go into an audience, go into a room and with a plan to offend anyone. That's just not going to happen. But if you're not aware, because I wasn't aware either, I didn't know anything. I didn't know that one in seven people in the United States has a gay relative or friend or co-worker. I mean, the numbers are really staggering. And unfortunately, so many people have not been able to come out, as they say, right. and live as, as who they are, which is really very sad. And the trend seems to be that more and more people will be coming out. And, this, mm-hmm. and, and we've probably always had gay people in our audiences, we just haven't been aware of it. Right. And as it becomes much more socially acceptable, and, mm-hmm. and, and even even last week we were talking about how Clive, Clive Davis, Davis, yes. Clive Davis, even yeah. just last week we were talking about how Clive mm-hmm. Davis in his autobiography just mm-hmm. came out and said that he, that he was, he's been in a nine-year monogamous relationship with a man. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's trending in the direction we're going to see more and more of it in our audiences. Oh, absolutely. So from a speaker's perspective, this is really not something that, you, that can be avoided. For 12 years, I've been doing this, and, and it's and it's been so much fun because I've met just the most wonderful people, and people are so open to helping you. They really want to share information with you, and it and you can ask any question. I mean, once I believe a person believes that you really care about them and you're really interested about them, because and you're coming from a good place in your heart, that you're not, you have no malice in your heart when you ask these kinds of questions. So you can say, for example, we were talking about terminology that isn't acceptable, but you can very easily ask a person, a gay person or, you know, a T or a B person, a question, and, and they would never be offended by it. I've asked so many questions, but that's why I've learned so much, you know, and I have absolutely no problem with that. I'm very comfortable talking about it, as you can tell, because that's what I do all the time, and so many of my friends are gay or, or lesbian or bisexual, transgender, so I have no problem. I'm well, you also are able to ask those questions because you've established a, a, mm-hmm. an, a level of trust, and, they, and you've also established your intent with those questions. What advice would you have for speakers who might be a little uncomfortable with this topic, what could they do to get more comfortable? Yeah. Well, with this? I, I think the best thing is to just, you know, get rid of that uncomfortableness and just talk well, that's to really the easy person. to say. I mean, if, if someone's lived a certain way, for, you know, we talked as well, Maya, that mm-hmm. this is a generation away from being irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids think I'm crazy when we talk about these things. Right. Kids too. today, they don't care. They don't care. They don't care. Yeah, for, they're our hope. They're our <laughs> hope of the future is the kids. <laughs> but for the rest of us that are, are learning to adapt and transition through this, and so you, you, we may have some speakers who are very uncomfortable with this, mm-hmm. and they may say, you know, 
based on their religious upbringing and other things. What advice would you have for them? Well, I would say that most people probably do know a gay person. I, I, I'm pretty sure that most people know a gay person. And if you don't know, every city in the United States has an LGBT center. They have a community center, you know, the, the LGBT center of every city. Go to the center. Call them. Give them a call and say, look, I'm a speaker. I speak all over, and I know that there are gay people in my audiences, and I want to make sure that I'm being sensitive to these audiences. So, my is this really an issue? Are there really that many gay people in our audiences that we need to be concerned about well, this? Well, I think if there's only one, then we need to be concerned about Good it. Good answer. Right? Enough, if there's sure. only one person. I mean, I would feel so, you know, devastated if I was sitting as an audience member and the speaker, of course, not meaning to offend me, but said something that was that. I would feel just awful about that. And as a speaker myself, I would never want to offend anyone. And, you know, we're talking about it. We spoke yesterday, and there's a lot of things that you're just the perfect person because there's a lot of things that you... <laughs> well, yes, yes, I am. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to change my business cards. <laughs> just change it to CEO, the perfect person. And we'll update the that. website tonight. Yeah, but I mean, with the spirit that you come from, uh-huh. that you could very, very easily speak to a gay person and ask any question because they would see immediately that you were genuine and that you really cared and that you were really interested because you want to be a better person or a better speaker to your audiences. Certainly. Well, thank you. I think most speakers, they really do want to connect with their audiences. Mm-hmm. I think for our listeners out there, many of our listeners, this is a non-issue. They already are comfortable in this space. Mm-hmm. But I think there are there is a segment of our association yeah. that is have that has, has resisted this change. And, mm-hmm. and, and to their credit, they are transitioning. What insights could you provide to them about how they could overcome some of these these obstacles? Well, I would suggest visiting websites of some of the national organizations that are just a wealth of information. I would say start with the National Lesbian and Gay uh, Journalist Association, the NJ, the N... NLGJA. That's it, because you most most of them are GLs. So, well, see, I'm not the only one confused then, Maya. I'm, having a, I'm trying to take notes. I can't remember the alphabet soup of the I day. I know. The acronyms are, are just scary. But it's the National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association. As again, I think that's a great place to start, because as journalists, you know, they want to make sure that they're creating resources that enable people to communicate as effectively and sensitively as they possibly can. I would say visit that website. Take a look. That would give you a great place to start is to take a look at their website. Visit the HRC, Human Rights Campaign website also. There's another one that's called GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, G-L-A-A-D. You can visit their site. And lastly, I would say visit your community center in your community. Boy, it'll be a great experience because you'll learn a lot and it'll open your eyes and the people at the center will be so happy that you came. They'll be so thrilled <laughs> to share information with you. And after you, after that, you'll walk away and you'll feel so much better yourself and a little bit more comfortable. And then just find a gay person. There are plenty out there. Where am I going to find, find a gay, a gay person, person to talk to? I've got plenty I can put you in touch with. Just call me. I know thousands. <laughs> One of the things also that I think the speakers need to realize is that being insensitive to this community Let's talk about it from an economic standpoint. Insensitivity in these areas may actually cost them business, and they may never know it. There are a lot of gay and lesbian people in the meetings industry, and speakers who are inadvertently offensive, they may not know why they didn't get the business, but that could be a contributing factor. Exactly, because there's a very good chance that the person that's signing your check could be gay. 
I mean, that happens all the time. There's so many gay meeting planners, and meeting planners often are the ones, of course, that hire the speakers. And I know so many gay meeting planners that have told me that they would never even book an event at a venue that wasn't gay friendly, even if they're working with an organization that's not a gay organization, because there's so many gay meeting planners that work for mainstream huge organizations. And they wouldn't take their straight organization to a venue that wasn't gay friendly because of their personal reasons. So you're saying they wouldn't hire speakers that weren't gay friendly either? No. Is that a fair thing? I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure. Can you imagine? I mean, I can only imagine that if a meeting planner hired a speaker, the speaker worked for them one time and, and said something without any intentions of being offensive that was offensive that would probably be the last time they would. and and as you said most likely they probably wouldn't even tell them what had happened so they would have no idea well what happened you know so it wouldn't be any reflection of their work or of their speaking abilities but it would be a personal thing and i'm sure that happens a lot so it would be to everyone's benefit to try to educate yourself it's no different than ethnic minorities i mean you wouldn't say something insensitive in an audience about black people or about Hispanic people or about Asian or women or about disabled people, which is the largest of all the diverse markets, actually, you just wouldn't do that. But we know quite a bit about those groups. So we're, we're pretty much educated on those. But with LGBT, because it's so new and it is sensitive, and I understand totally people that are having difficulty with it because it isn't what... Well, I'll confess, you know, it's they, even difficult to talk about it. I mean, I feel very uncomfortable about putting this out on VOE. I think it's important. I think it's necessary. I'm not uncomfortable on gay people, but I, but this is not a topic that we've really spoken about as an right. association. Yeah. And I think, and I, I hope someday that someone will listen to our recording and wonder what in the world was all the fuss about. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. What's all the fuss about? Because we have gay members in our organization. We even have the rainbow speakers. So these are all gay, rainbow meaning relating to the rainbow flag, which is kind of the symbol for the gay community. But there are a number of members of NSA that are gay, and uh, they don't have a problem with it. I mean, they're members of the rainbow well, of course speakers. not, but it's, it's never been on our, or on, as, it's never been part of the conversation. Right. Yeah. And I think this is a very important topic, and I'm very grateful for you taking yeah. time to talk well, to us Well, I think today. that the conversation about diversity is changing, and we just really have to step up to the plate. We really have to embrace all people because it's really a question of human rights and everyone has the right to be treated equally and and really that's the bottom line this really is a social justice issue it totally is yeah absolutely but it kind of it still will could affect you at the bottom line but you know first and foremost i think people just need to approach it to treat other people the way that they would want to be treated and no one, you know, no one wants to be treated badly. And just think, I think if we really think about it, that if well, we're... Some of the SMN crowd kind of likes the... <laughs> okay. Time to go. Time to go. This guy is out of line. He's out of line. Out of line? Yeah. I'm going to edit that out. We said no one wants to be treated badly, but those are people too, right. Maya. Come on. You're right about that. I want to be sensitive to all groups, Maya. <laughs> But it's so funny because oftentimes people think of the alternative lifestyle, which is not, that has nothing to do with gay. But it used to happen to me all the time where they'd call me Maya. I'm like, why are you calling me? That has nothing to do with LGBT, nothing. Oh, they're right. Oh, yeah, you're right, huh? I hadn't thought about it. I just thought, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with nothing. Maybe maybe that's the last bastion. This won't be on the No, 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 no. (laughs) Is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to add? No, I think in closing, I would just like to say that this is 
the world that we live in. Mm. It's just the world that we live in, and there's no escaping it. And so as speakers, we are going to encounter all, we can't pick and choose the people that we talk to. So we're talking to a cross-section that's representative of the world that we live in. We're going to speak to men, women, blacks, Hispanic, Asians, and gay people. And, and Greeks. Greeks and you. everybody. You know what I'm saying? I'm ex- I'm, I don't mean to exclude anyone, but I'm just saying that we're going to speak to all kinds of people. And we'll be better speakers, we'll be more effective speakers, and we'll get hired, I think, more often and get rebooked more often if we are respectful of everyone in our audience. And I can promise you that almost every audience is probably going to have a gay person in it. And even if the person sitting in the audience isn't gay, they may have a gay son. I can't tell you, because people know that I work in this arena. People tell me, oh my God, my brother's gay, my my sister's gay, my son, or what, you know. They have a gay family member. So it's just as devastating to them, a person who's straight, who has a gay child or a gay sibling, if someone says something that can be disparaging to someone that they care about. I would just say, just be really careful. It's just very difficult to pinpoint it because there's so many things that we talk about that could possibly cross that line where terminology may come into effect that could be offensive to someone. When you also so, gave, the advice you gave was to ask. Just ask. Just ask. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Just ask. You know, ask me. Ask you. You're an expert now. <laughs> Just call Theo, people. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Maya. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Maya. We'll share more information on the NSA Rainbow Speakers Community Group in a future edition of VOE. Until then, be sure to visit their page on Facebook. Search NSA Rainbow Speakers Community Group on Facebook. We now sit down with Russell Trahan, owner and president of PRPR, a boutique public relations firm and longtime supporter of NSA. In this interview, he shares valuable insights into the somewhat mysterious and alluring world of public relations and what speakers can do to get the greatest impact from their PR efforts. PRPR is a boutique public relations agency. We focus on speakers, authors, and experts. Our niche market is in the trade and industry and association magazines. Uh, You know, it's always really sweet and sexy to say, hey, I've been in the Wall Street Journal, I've been in USA Today, I've been in the LA Times or the Washington Post, and and we do that for our clients as well. We are a full-service agency, but really, especially the the speakers who are our clients get the most benefit, the, the residual return on their publicity investment by being in those targeted audience publications, the the association magazines, the trade and industry magazines. When you're in their their magazines, when you're on their websites, when you're in their e-zines, it gives you that stamp of credibility. It gives you that endorsement by those associations. So you can approach them for their next convention. You can approach their members to go in and speak to their companies. And you've got name recognition. You've got top of mind awareness. And it's already been proven that your message, your tips are relevant to their industry. What advice would you give a speaker who's considering launching a PR campaign? 
launch it well in advance. We get so many people that come to us and, hey, my book comes out next week. What can you do for me? It's like, well, start six months ago. Is That's what we... Um, so is six months adequate lead time? In the four to six month range is adequate lead time. You know, you can certainly start before that. It, it never hurts to say my forthcoming book, my upcoming book. It, it never hurts to prime the pump. As long as you've got it on Amazon or on your website, some reference point so when people do see your name and the book title, they can go find it. But it never hurts to start too early. But really, the four to six month timeline will give you that frequency and repetition that's so important. People seeing your name and your book title over and over and over again in their morning paper while they're drinking their coffee, at their office in their trade magazine, in the magazine while at the dentist's office while they're waiting. They see your name over and over again. They look you up online. They see all your social media sites. Everything has a consistent message. It's all very professionally laid out. That's going to get those pre-sales for the book and give you a great launch when it is finally released. You've mentioned several examples, and they all seem to be in the print world. Uh, Do you help speakers with other media placements? We do a little television and radio. It's kind of funny. Both PRPR's founder, Pam Lontos, and I have a background in radio, but neither of us advocate it for publicity. Why? It's, It's great for a splash. It's great for a blip. But it doesn't give you that important frequency and repetition. I'm sure everybody has experienced they're in their car, they're driving somewhere, they're hearing a program, they're hearing about an author, they're hearing about a consultant, they think the information is great, oh, i got to remember that. But yet, by the time they get to the office, by the time they get to the store, by the time they get home, they're bombarded with a hundred other messages, and the name, the book title, it's gone. And when you're in the magazine... Even if your target audience, even if the reader isn't ready to react to it that day or even that week or even that month, they've got the tangible. They can rip out the page. They can save that issue. They can bookmark it online, print it off, download it. They can even pass it off to a friend. You know, maybe a week later they're talking to a friend that's having a problem. They go, you know, I just read that article. So really for frequency, repetition. And shelf life, it sounds like. Exactly, shelf life. That that all-important, you know, that residual return. Television and radio, like I said, they're, they're great for a splash. They'll give you a good blip. But if you want that long-term results, that's where you're still going to get it from print and from being online. What are some mistakes speakers make when it comes to PR? One of the biggest mistakes they make is trying to push themselves and their message too much. When they're talking to a writer, reporter, or an editor, they try to get their message out a little too hard. The way to really be successful in your media relationship is to ask them, what are they working on? What, what message do they need? What are their readers interested in? And present your message to them that way. Be a resource to the media. Offer them that unique, fresh perspective in a way that they say their readers are interested in. It's, if you try to push your message out, they're going to resist it. But if you can position yourself as that resource, they'll keep coming back to you again and again and again. And you'll get that frequency and repetition because you're helping the media 
help their readers. I've heard so many stories from speakers where they've been disappointed in their PR campaign, and I think you can trace it back to unrealistic expectations. So as a, as a speaker is establishing a media campaign, a public relations campaign, um, what can you do to help them manage their expectations? And I appreciate that. That is something that we overcome all the time at PRPR. They're I take phone calls all the time. I paid all this money and I got nothing for it. Make sure you're dealing with an agency that, A, understands speakers, that, that's going to be able to position you in front of your target audience. It's more important to be in front of 500 readers that are decision makers that will hire you than it is to be in front of 100,000 readers who aren't your target audience, that aren't your readers. One Which of the, makes perfect sense. I think yeah. what happens oftentimes is for speakers and for other industries, they get distracted by the numbers. Yes. And the idea, I want to get in front of as many people as possible. Yes. But what you're saying is it's not so much the volume or number of people you get, but get in front of the right people. The right people, exactly. When I go in and say I'm, I'm speaking to an NSA chapter or a, a group of speakers, one of the things I always do is I say, you know, okay, everybody raise your hand if you're on Facebook. Everybody raises their hand. Raise your hand if you're friends on Facebook with other people in this room. Of course, everybody raises their hand. Say, okay, raise your hand if somebody else in this room is going to hire you. And very few people raise their hand. I'm like, that's that's the difference between social media networking and social media marketing is being in front of, like you just said, the right people, not the volume of people. Thank you, Russell, and thank you for your continued support of NSA. You can learn more about Russell Trahan and PRPR by visiting their website, www.prpr.net. We now go to beautiful Southern California to hear from Rob Shore of Shorespeak.com. Rob brings over 30 years of corporate America leadership experience, where he led sales teams that did over $30 billion in sales. Today, he is the publisher of Wholesaler Masterminds Magazine host of a radio program by the same name, and a content-creating machine. Get your pencils ready and be prepared to take copious notes. Here's Rob Shore and his five sure ways. Today, let's talk about five sure ways that you can increase your engagement and traffic using LinkedIn. Now, you might be thinking, Rob, I am a Twitter, I am a Facebook kind of guy or gal, but I want to tell you our business at Wholesaler Masterminds has been dramatically increased through our use of LinkedIn. There's five basic things that I think we can pay attention to that can help us use LinkedIn more efficiently. One is upload your address book. Are you aware that there's a wonderful place on LinkedIn that will allow you to take your address book via CSV file and upload it? Once you upload it into LinkedIn, you'll be able to identify all those folks within your address book that are already on LinkedIn, and you'll be able to send them an invitation magically moving you from 300 connections to perhaps five, six, seven, 800 connections. And in doing that, you'll have your second level and your third level connections increased as well. Number two, the completeness of your profile. One thing that's really important to note is that LinkedIn has changed their look and feel. If you haven't been there in a while, the picture you may be using on LinkedIn no longer fits the block that they've given you. You can put in a much bigger picture today, so make sure that your profile picture in LinkedIn properly suits the reinvention of LinkedIn as it exists today. Number two is in the background area, you find summary info. Inside the summary info section of LinkedIn, you have the ability to use up to, I believe it's 2,000 words, 2,000 words to state all the benefits of why your business and your opportunity for the reader makes perfect sense. 
There's also one section within summary that allows you to put in videos, presentations, slide shares. What you have to look for is a little icon in the summary box over to the upper right. And in doing that, you'll be able to put, on, put in this additional information to help dress up your summary. And the third one is make sure that you have contact information inside of that summary section, that background information. So there were three pieces of the completeness of the profile. One was the picture. The second was making sure you had summary info, including potentially that space for videos or slide share, and to be able to make sure that you put contact information in that summary section. Number three, start a group. Start a group around your area of expertise. We start a group for wholesalers. We start a group for wholesalers because that's our niche. So it gives you a wonderful opportunity to become a voice within a particular community. But what about if you don't have the ability to start a group? Number four is manage a group. We recognize that a couple of the groups that we like to frequent were getting very messy. They were getting populated with spam. And we wanted the opportunity to help. Of course, we had an ulterior motive to be sure, we reached out to the group owner and said, hey, do you need help managing this group? We'd be delighted to become a group manager. And in two different cases, the owner of the group came back to us and said, you know, this is actually taking more time than we had in mind. Our groups have gotten too big and we have real nine to five jobs. Would you like to take over the group? So we went from our group, Wholesaler Masterminds of 3,000 plus members, taking on two additional groups, and now our sphere of influence between ownership of group and management of groups is up to 20,000 participants. So if you see a group that you like and you see it getting out of hand, reach out to that group owner and see if you can assist. And the fifth one is something you're very familiar with, but I want to say it because it goes right along with how you would interact on LinkedIn, and that is post items of interest that are inside of the group, post items of interest inside the general stream at updates within LinkedIn. You do it at Facebook, you do it at Twitter. Don't forget to do it at LinkedIn as well. And we like to do it individually at LinkedIn. We don't necessarily like to use the once I posted on Twitter, it goes everywhere feature. We like for our posts inside of each community to be separate and distinct. Of course, that decision is yours. Five sure ways to increase your engagement and traffic and build your business using LinkedIn. Number one, make sure you upload your address book. Number two, make sure your completeness of profile is intact. Number three, start a group. And if you can't do that, number four is manage a group. And number five, make sure you're constantly posting items of interest to your community. I'll see you next time on Five Sure Ways. Thank you, Rob. Our next guest is Francis Jones, an Infusionsoft trainer and product expert, to talk to us about Infusionsoft and how speakers can utilize it to help them run a better business. Francis, what is Infusionsoft? Infusionsoft is a uh, customer relationship management software, so CRM software. We deal with uh, customers from all walks of life. Uh, It gives the customer the ability to market to a specific targeted customer base with a specific targeted message the ability to collect data from their customers, uh, process e-commerce transactions, work through the sales pipeline, create a pipeline and help their their, uh, sales reps to process their prospects all the way through the sale. I understand that a a number of highly successful speakers are currently using Infusionsoft. Mm -hmm. Why don't people use it? There's any number of reasons. We actually are fairly particular about the kind of customer that we accept. And I say that only because 
there's no reason for someone to use software that, or buy software that they're not going to use. So we look at customers that fit a specific target, and it's not that customers outside that target can't use the software, it's just been our experience that if they don't fit within a certain target, that they aren't going to be able to maximize its efficiency. So they might not use the software because they don't have enough of a business model. Their business model isn't built out yet. They don't have a website. They don't have a customer base that's the right size yet. All right, so tell us about your ideal client profile. Our ideal client profile would be anywhere from two to 10 employees, around uh, maybe a thousand contacts in their uh, database, uh, a website, uh, around a million dollars in revenue. That's more of our target. Uh, certainly we go out, out, outside of that, but more than anything, you have to have a business, business plan, a business model that's effective. You have to have customers to market to. If you think about it, CRM software has to do with targeting and segmentation. If you don't have a database, you can't use the software. How do you differentiate Infusionsoft from some of the other CRMs that are out there? We consider ourselves to be the all-in-one marketing software. So we have the ability to eliminate what we would call multi-system chaos. So if without Infusionsoft, if you wanted to accept online payments through e-commerce, for instance, you'd have to have a provider. In order to do auto-responding, you'd have to have an auto-responder. In order to do sales uh, CRM, you'd have to have a sales function. And so we take everything and put it into one bundle so that you can have everything reporting and feeding off of each other. So that if someone purchases something, a set of actions may happen as a result of that purchase. So an email may go out or requests for a testimonial or follow up, how do we do? So instead of a, a business having to go in and manually pun punch that stuff out, it'll happen automatically. So it ties it all together. To the end user, is it private labeled or is your logo all over these things? No, it's private labeled. With any provider, you're going to have some labeling that, that occurs with that. For instance, a web form is something you would collect data on. You'd put it on your website that is branded as your website. Now, we can host those things for customers that don't have the website if they choose to, not to use it, if they want us to host it. But in general, the information is pushed from their website into Infusionsoft and out of Infusionsoft through emails that are labeled with the customer. It comes from the customer, so it's a seamless transition. This becomes the back of house that's never seen by the marketplace. You're just the engine running the CRM function for the speaker. Correct. It also They also have the ability for us to host the emails uh, if they don't have a website, for instance. I mentioned our target user. There are customers outside of that target. If they don't have a, a website, we can host that. Now, that the URL would show those things. The URL is the only thing the customer would see outside of their branding, if we're hosting it, for instance. Can you tell us about any particular client without mentioning the name who's used it very effectively? I'll, I'll mention the name. Sure. A, a man named Jermaine Griggs. He, uh, every year we have a big user conference. And uh, two years ago, he won what was what we call our ultimate marketer contest. And Jermaine Griggs is great, and he does a lot of publicity for us. And we love him. He loves us. He actually has a business model that he does piano lessons online. And so people go to his website, they sign up for piano lessons, and he asks them certain questions, and based on the answers they give him, he sends them targeted messages, he follows up with them, sees how they're doing, he shows them videos, and he's created a process that's produced amazing results for his business. Obviously, I can't give numbers for what he's done, but he, is, uh, he has done amazing things with his business from start to finish by using Infusionsoft. So is it fair to say this automates the back end of your business? It's absolutely what it does. It's all about automation. It's all about getting the right message to the right person at the right time automatically. Thank you, Francis. And thank you, Infusionsoft, for being such a loyal supporter of NSA and speakers worldwide. To learn more about Infusionsoft, visit the NSA website 
at www.nsaspeaker.org and click on the Infusionsoft icon at the bottom of the homepage. We now go to NSA's 2013 Convention Chair, CSP, David Glickman, to learn more about this summer's annual convention. David? Thanks so much, Theo. You know, it's funny, the one question I kept hearing the most was, what's the theme of the convention, David? What, what's the theme? And I gotta tell you, we explored a lot of different ideas for a convention theme. Things like Cavitpalooza, or Lying About Your Fee 2013, or Speaking Gangham style. But when all was said and done, we realized that the convention was really just the time to announce that High Point University has purchased the National Speakers Association. No, I'm kidding. No, when all was said and done, we realized that we don't need a theme because the NSA convention is the theme. For 40 years, no matter what city we're in and no matter what we call it, we all come together for the NSA convention. The only thing that changes is the city and the year. So we invite all of you to Philadelphia for the NSA convention 2013. So our opening general session presenter is the hilarious Scott Christopher, co-author of The Levity Effect. Now, you may not have heard of Scott, but once you hear him speak, you will never forget him. And our closing general session presenter is Don McMillan, the world's funniest engineer. You've probably seen Don on TV, and he will change the way you look at PowerPoint forever. So between those two humor bookends, we have an incredible lineup of our other general session presenters. Folks like Walter Bond, who will show you how he doubled his NBA income as a professional speaker. And Bruce Turkell, the branding expert now seen on Fox Business, who will talk about creating a powerful, profitable brand. And Connie Deacon, CSP. Connie has spent 20 years on television. She's an Emmy Award winner. She's in the Radio TV Broadcasters Hall of Fame. And she will show you how to be the kind of influencer your clients want you to be. And at least four more general session presenters who I'll tell you about in future editions of VOE. Now, in addition to our general session lineup, we'll have 50 concurrent sessions that will cut right to the chase and teach you the things you want and need to know. And there's more. At the same time we're doing the concurrent sessions, we'll be operating the Learning Lounge, which we introduced at last year's convention. But this year, the program will be more intense, more varied, and more specific to the skills that you have told us you want to learn. The atmosphere in Philadelphia will be very festive as 2013 marks NSA's 40th anniversary. We'll be honoring the 40th anniversary in many fun ways that will also be educational too. Add in a great Marriott Hotel in downtown Philly, free Wi-Fi for all hotel guests, and lots of surprises I've got in store, and you will not want to miss the NSA Convention 2013. You will get your money's worth many times over by coming to Philly. I can't wait to see you there. Thank you, David. Be sure to visit the NSA website at www.nsaspeaker.org to register today. Join me now for part two of my interview with Sally Hogshead. There are two ways to build a speaking career. There's the slow and traditional way where we take traditional steps, where we take little baby steps year by year and over the decades build a career. What I didn't know and what I learned last year, my epiphany was there's another way. And that way is not gradual incremental growth. That looks like this. And there's a decision-making point right there. And if you get on that ride, it's a totally different career. It's less certain, but this is like strapping the booster rockets on. 
I want to talk a little bit more about your background because my opinion of what you've done is you took the skill set you developed in your previous career and then you just became the client. You became the product that you used the knowledge and experience and tools and techniques that made you so successful in your previous life and you applied them to the business coupled with what you learned at NSA and you've had an explosive year. Yeah, now let's be clear. I mean, I was a global creative director on Fortune 500 brands, and yet I was not able to get my speaking career in high gear. So, you know, I was a professional speaker for five years and did not work with that bureaus. I yeah, five I, years. I started studying with Nick Morgan, one of the world's most respected speaking agents who trained Tim Sanders, among others. I started training in 2005. I wasn't pursuing it full time because my, my company was my primary focus. But the point is, I didn't just wake up one day in 2011 and say, I'm going to be a speaker. It's like, I'd been working and it just was not gelling. I was not getting traction. Somehow there was a disconnect. My content was not resonating or I was not introducing myself in the right way to the right people and I couldn't figure out what it was and and what you were saying about marketing made me even more frustrated I mean if there's one thing I should be able to do it's market so why was I falling down you were not marketing the fascinate brand five years ago correct that's right yeah my first book was named radical careering okay. and it was all about how, how to take your personal brand and push it as far as you can so that you can have the maximum success within your career but here's what I learned if you write a career book it ends up in the career category and the career category sucks. I mean, if you go to the career section of the bookstore, it's filled with like disappointed, disgruntled people who are mad about being fired or they aren't being paid enough. And if you have an event that's career oriented, people only come if they're unhappy in their career. Nobody who's happy in their career <laughs> comes to a career event. So then I became a spokesperson for careerbuilder.com. And then I was, I really got it loud and clear. The career category just was not fun for me because it wasn't aspirational that the big thought leaders and change makers were in a different space. And so I began researching the, the concept of attention. Why do we pay attention to something? This journey, this transformation that you're describing, where you were so committed to this one topic, but then at some point you realize it's not really where you wanted to be. Here I was, a motivational speaker in the area of careers, and I was totally demotivated and I hated my career. How ironic is that? <laughs> and, and I think that's something that's so important for us as speakers to do. We are allowed to be unhappy. You know, we, we, it's our job to impart information and a message and, and inspiration and ideas and information. But sometimes we don't take pause and say, is this really fulfilling to me? You know, is this going to take me where I want to go? And when I stood back and looked, I realized, no, even though I've invested deeply in writing and publishing a book with Penguin and, and, and working with Career Builder and, and promoting it and doing the book launch... Stop. I had, you know, it felt like a total failure. It felt like a breakdown. And at that time of my career, this was 2006, I would have told you that it was a major career slump because it was like I had put all of my eggs in this basket and I was walking away from the basket. How ironic. So you're so ironic. Radical career, you're teaching radical how to. How to have a radical career. And you hated yours. I hated my own career. And the whole book is about how to be powerful and valuable and fulfilled in your work. And you were not. And I was not. However, in the book, I say, aspire to be the dumbest person in the room. In other words, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. 
And so I took a step back and I got involved with organizations like 800 CEO Read. I started building um, my knowledge of, of other different areas that I could write in. And, I, and I, I researched, I spent six months figuring out what I wanted my topic to be. This time understanding that when you write a book or build a speaking platform, it's a trajectory. And you're, you're basically pointing a battleship into a direction that you have to be ready to be excited about this, not just today and not just tomorrow, but five years from now. You know, you, you pick your topic very, very carefully. So I started with the topic of attention. And then I expanded it to how ADD is kind of this provocative, positive force in our culture right now. And that idea started becoming more familiar. An article came out on that in Wired and so on. And I kept looking. And then one day I found, I found it. I found the nugget. In a little academic journal, there was a tiny piece that said, fascination is one of the oldest words in all of humanity. It comes from the word fascinare. It means to bewitch. And that when somebody was fascinated, they were under the spell of a magician. So anybody who had the power to fascinate was feared and, and revered because they were seen as having a power. I thought, that is really cool. You know, that's, we don't think about it like that. We don't think about persuasion and influence in the terms of casting a spell. So I continued researching it, and I found that in, in the Renaissance, all all kinds of books were written, filling libraries about how fascination was an evil curse. Mesopotamia, Constantinople, they write about it too. The Salem witch trials. The Salem witch trials were not about witchcraft. They were about fascination, about witches who had the power to fascinate their their victims. And if we look throughout history and we see that fascination was, in, was this almighty force of persuasion until the middle of the 20th century, which is when marketing was invented. And as soon as we had this artificial construct of marketing, we quit thinking about this instinctive, innate force that rules all of our decision-making named fascination. And that's when I knew I wanted to write a book about fascinate. Talk a little bit about your previous background in the, in the ad world, and you were a copywriter and such. What lessons from that experience can you share with speakers? What lessons of the big brands can speakers apply to their own personal brands? There are a couple of very specific things that I believe wholeheartedly for um, not only for marketers, but also for us as individuals, as speakers. If you try to fascinate everybody, you're probably not going to be fascinating anybody. In other words, if you have a message that you're trying to boil it down to be so lowest common denominator, your message is going to feel like overcooked white rice. You know, it's going to be mushy and tasteless. You have to be ready to polarize intelligently. You have to be able to take a stand for something that you believe in and then, and then very strategically carve out an area of authority where you can have opinions that not everybody is going to agree with. As speakers, we, we, have, to find, we have to find an enemy. You have to find something you can push against. What's the force that you're trying to push against? Right. So me, I push against being boring or not allowing yourself to be your most fascinating or companies that aren't willing to take a stand and have an opinion and get out there to really incite emotional response. Like when we look at the marketing from a Microsoft or a Kellogg's or an AT&T, these companies are so big and they have so much money that they can afford to repeat their message over and over again so they can afford to be boring. As speakers, we don't have budgets like that. We don't have the opportunity to talk to everybody in a Super Bowl ad. We have to be very, you know, think of every time you speak as a silver bullet. You have to make sure that you are uh, differentiating yourself very, very clearly. The second thing is that too often as speakers, we play not to lose. 
We're not playing to win. We're playing not to lose. We try so hard to be so perfect that it ends up taking all the edge, all the irony, all the wit, the friction out of our message. Examples of this would be over-rehearsing so that things feel canned, toning down our personalities when we speak so that it feels like we're just robots, saying the obvious. Like if everybody in the audience nods along and they agree with what you're saying, then you haven't said anything new. The point is to try to bring them new information, to challenge them, push them a little bit. I believe the audience should feel pushed out a little bit outside their comfort zone just enough in order for them to be given something they didn't have when you walked in the room. Because if they walk out of the room the exact same as they did when you arrived, then nothing has changed. So let's back up. You talked about boring for a moment. Aren't some people just boring? No, nobody is boring. We're just fascinating in different ways. And this was actually one of the... But can't you be fascinated by how boring somebody is? No, you'd be fascinated by how they use the triggers that I call trust or mystique. Trust is about consistency and reliability, like Brooks Brothers. Brooks Brothers is not exactly rhinestone studdled. You know, you're not right. going to see a bedazzled Brooks Brothers suit. It's boring, but that's that's why people buy it is because it's consistent, it's dependable, it's reliable, it's well made, it's understated. It sends a message of foundational Strength belief and, and right, exactly. Mystique, in addition, mystique is a the the personality trigger that people use when they don't throw everything out there. You know, when they when they're a little bit more subtle in the way in which they deliver, they carefully edit what they say and they're not they're not into the drama they, they're not into the fuss so everybody is fascinating it's just you you have to appreciate the value that somebody brings that's that's what happens when as you get to know somebody they slowly unfold their strengths but as speakers we don't have the opportunity to slowly unfold our strengths we have to be able to encapsulate them immediately so the audience can get that otherwise if the audience tunes out we've lost Are, so there's seven fascination what do you call them? Archetype? Triggers. Triggers. There's seven, there seven fascination triggers. Power, passion, mystique, prestige, alarm, rebellion, and trust. And every trigger creates a different response. Each of these triggers are deeply neurologically hardwired, deep within our brains. As I was, as I was building the concept of fascination, I worked with neurologists and biological anthropologists, radiologists, to understand how, how the brain receives and sends information. So let's take one for an ex- example. On one hand, let's, let's start with passion. The passion trigger is easy for us as speakers to understand. Passion is what is elicited in your brain when you're with somebody who shares easily, they participate, they create emotion in themselves with you, they tend to use a lot of body language, they use a lot of adjectives, they're great presenters because they're very comfortable sharing and communicating with other people. They're all about, for them, the, the, the goal is to be able to connect and build relationships and bond. So these personalities are, are great in customer service. They're, they're that, that brilliant smile when you walk into your doctor's office and it just it makes you feel good. Passion people are very emotional. On the downside, they can be uh, very into the drama, they can be high maintenance, they can be undependable, and they tend to not be focused on an end result because for them, the goal is connecting. You know, it's sort of like when you have two people, two passion personalities working on a team, they're going to have a great time. They're going to be high-fiving, they're going to have notes full of things, they're going to be laughing, people are going to be walking by the conference room wondering what they're working on, but at the end of the day, they're not necessarily going to have a result because for them, the result was bonding. You know, that's just naturally how they're hardwired. Now, on the other end, Let's take a look at the alarm trigger. Alarm personalities, ones that have a primary alarm trigger, are all about safety. They have a very sensitive social antenna to make sure that things stay on track. They're, they're focused on budgets, deadlines, deliverables. They like to be able to know what the framework is so they can stay within the framework. We see a lot of event planners 
and organizers that have a primary alarm trigger. Like when, when you're when you're when you're working with an event planner that is really great about making sure that things stay on track, that everybody stays organized and focused towards the goal, that there's a specific process that needs to be followed. They follow up once, they follow up twice, they have a checklist. I love working with people who have a primary alarm trigger because they keep me on track because I have a primary passion trigger. Mm. So we've seen these, these two different types of personalities. There's the very buoyant, sharing, expressive, intuitive, emotional passion personality. And then the, 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 the focused, deliberate, goal-oriented alarm personality. If you don't know that the person that you're working with, a passion personality is going to think the alarm personality is a little constrictive. And the alarm personality is going to think the passion personality is uh, scattered and all over the place. But they're two separate strengths that have two different applications for their jobs, for their careers, for their life. And the more that you can know about yourself and how the world sees you, the more that you can contribute more of that and build more value. Thank you, Sally. Fascinating indeed. You can learn more about Sally and the work she does by visiting her website at www.sallyhogshead.com. Well, another edition of VOE is almost complete. But it wouldn't be, nor could it be, until we hear from the handsome, witty, charming, and occasionally funny NSA president, CSP, Ron Culberson. Ron? Thanks, Theo. As NSA president, or as I like to call myself, king of all speakers, I get to visit most of the NSA chapters around the country. By July, I will have visited 33 of our 38 chapters. And no, I don't know why five chapters have not invited me to visit. I can only assume it's because of poor judgment on their part. But chapters are a hidden gem in NSA. Well, actually, hidden is probably the wrong word. Maybe the right word is underutilized. Kind of like that treadmill that sits in your basement. It's a great tool, but it doesn't do you much good if you're using it as a clothes hanger. I attended my first NSA event at the Winter Workshop in Norfolk, Virginia. I was totally overwhelmed by all the talent, success, and business savvy I saw among the other speakers. And I went home wondering, how could I harness that to help my own business? I needed a local resource because, as you know, there is a sense of isolation we all feel when we work in a van down by the river or even in an office in our basement. The speaking business is just isolating. Luckily, I met Arnold Sano, who was a member of NSADC, and he not only helped me individually, he encouraged me to go to a chapter meeting. So I ponied up the money and became a member of NSADC. And for about a year, I just sat in a corner and didn't participate. Then I had the opportunity to serve on a chapter fundraising committee, and once I became involved, it felt like the resources just fell in my lap. I was invited to join two mastermind groups. I eventually got on the board, and then I was introduced to a number of opportunities within NSA. Now, I've been in business for 17 years, and yet when I attend a chapter meeting, I never leave with at least one great idea. And usually it's a lot more than that. But here's what I've seen when traveling around the country visiting other NSA chapters. Many of my more experienced colleagues are often not active in their chapters. They say things like, well, I'm traveling all week and I don't want to give up family time. Or I've heard all the speakers they bring in, so there really isn't any educational value for me. Or... I'm so famous and the security at the hotel's so bad, it's become dangerous for me to attend. Okay, I made that one up. But let me offer you a different perspective. The more our seasoned members attend chapters, the more our seasoned members will attend chapters. You know what I mean? It's like a synergy that participation creates. You see, we've worked hard over the past few years to support our chapters so that they can deliver the best education and community available at the local level. But some still struggle because they're attracting more non-members than members. 
Now, don't get me wrong. We value the people who come to NSA to learn about and get into this business. But our chapters are primarily there to serve our members. And so everybody benefits when more members are involved. Now, I love our chapters and I want them to thrive. They will only do that if our members support them, and especially our more seasoned members. So I'll continue to support NSA DC because my career has benefited from being a part of my chapter and because I still get great value. And I think you can too. And that's what I know. I hope it was somehow helpful to you. King of all speakers? Seriously, Ron? Oh boy, Dale's going to have a field day with that one. Okay, NSA Nation, that concludes another edition of VOE. Thank you to all of our guests for the generous gift of time and insights. Thanks, too, to all of the NSA staff and volunteers that make NSA possible. Thanks, too, to you, the listener, for well, listening. And thanks for all the fan mail and support. Keep letting me know your thoughts. I read every email that comes in, and I'm so grateful to all of those who take the time to reach out to me. Feeling the love, peeps. Feeling the love. Now, get on that NSA website, www.nsaspeaker.org, and register for convention today, and I'll see you in Philly this summer. And it won't be long before our ship comes in, I said. It won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.